It's episode three of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your premier Milwaukee Brewers podcast. Uh, I'm Steve Garshinsky. With me, as always, is J.P. Breen and Ryan Topp. Uh, topics today, if we're going down the rundown, uh, mostly about bunting. So if you don't want to hear about bunting, you're probably going to have to move in about 10, 15 minutes on this podcast. But before we get going, I just want to mention uh, we are recording on a Mix Pre 6 from Sound Devices. They're helping us out, making sure we sound good for this podcast. So if you get a chance, check out sounddevices.com. Uh, and check out all their audio gear. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Send your questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com. And we also have a Facebook page uh, that is mostly run by Ryan. So quality of posts there vary, but uh, you can try to contact us and follow us there. You will at least be able to hear the podcast because the link will go up at that uh, location. Okay, the Milwaukee Brewers have righted the ship a bit since we last had an episode. They took two of three from Tampa Bay, uh, but the third game of the series left kind of a sour taste in everybody's mouth. They dropped a two-to-one in a walk-off to Steven Souza Jr., given up by Jacob Barnes. It was all set up, uh, top of the ninth, tied 1-1, runners on first and second with no outs after singles by Eric Thames and Hernan Perez. Uh, Manny Pena up to bat and he grounds out into a double play. There was a lot of outrage online that Craig Council at the time didn't call for Manny Pena to bunt and move Thames and Perez into scoring position. So, Ryan, you're the one who kind of dug a little bit deeper on this. Why was it a good decision for Craig Council to let Manny Pena swing away? Um, I mean, it's, it's honestly a pretty much a 50-50 shot either way you look at it. Um, you can make a case either direction. Basically, looking at the the Tom Tango run expectancy charts from two thousand and or sorry ninety three to two thousand nine, it's a little bit better, a little more comparable to then what happened over the last five years. But um, if you look at it with first and second and no outs, you would expect one point five six runs to score on average after first and second no outs. You'd expect one point five six. And at second and third and one out, you would expect 1.44 runs to score. So you're basically giving up, theoretically anyway, a total there of about a tenth of a run. Okay? So overall, you're expecting, and that's assuming that you get the bunt down successfully, that you've got the runner, um, the runners have advanced, that nothing untoward happened defensively that actually allowed you to, uh, to reach base. Obviously, those are assumptions you can't totally make, so there's there's argument there, but whatever. Um, another way of looking at it also is that if you look at the percent of scoring any runs in an inning, actually, the percentage of scoring any runs at first and second and no outs is 64.4%. You will score a run or more 64.4% of the time, whereas if you're second and third and one out, it actually goes up to 69.8. So you're gaining about 5%. I mean, these are all marginal gains and, and losses. And again, this doesn't take into account if you unsuccessfully bunt. So if you, you have a bad bunt, you can bunt into a double play, obviously, yourself. Anything like that can, can happen. And it also doesn't take into account 
whether or not the defense makes a misplay because sometimes you put a, a ball in play and the defense can't get to it and you know everybody's safe or even an error occurs and then people can maybe even score. So there's a lot of different variables here. But well, basically, and on that play, Pena hit the ball hard. Yeah, he hit it on the screws. I mean, it, you know, that just finds a hole. It's probably scoring a run, and we're talking about it in a different manner. So, I mean, and the other thing is, it's not like you can't bunt into a double play. Right, you can. Now, what I would say is, I'm actually okay with bunting there. I don't have any problem with it. Um, I, I think the argument is, you know, how proficient is the batter who's up, and then how proficient is the batter behind him? And it was Keon Broxton on deck. And Broxton has obviously had some struggles lately, though he then ended up breaking out in a big way the next day. But, you know, whatever. You don't know that. Um, so really, to me, it's it, it cuts both directions. I think it's a it's a feel thing. And it's definitely a case where I, I don't think you can make a, a, a hard and fast rule that you need to bunt there or that you can't bunt there. I think it's really very much a manager's discretion sort of thing. So I don't have a problem with what council did at all and letting him swing away. And I wouldn't have had a problem if he'd bunted. What about you, JP? Yeah. Ultimately, I think everybody is upset about it because of the offensive struggles in the past in terms of a lot of strikeouts and poor performance with runners in scoring position and the fact that it, it didn't work. And so everybody is trying to make the case that you need to manufacture runs when you're not producing at the plate. And that's a loaded term for a lot of different reasons, but ultimately I think Ryan's exactly right. I think it, it's a 50, 50 shot either way. The only reason that bunting everybody assumes that the bunt is going to work with Manny Pena up at the plate. That's not a good assumption. He has not been asked to bunt very often. He's a very slow runner. So there is a good case that either he doesn't get the bunt down well, he pops it up and nobody moves forward, he bunts into a double play, he bunts into the into a situation in which Thames actually gets out at third base. A lot of different scenarios that everybody takes and doesn't like to take into account because everybody assumes, you know, so-and-so is a professional hitter, they can get a bunt down. We've seen a time and time and time again that that's not the case. So making that assumption in the first place is faulty. But... Taking into account the situation, Keon Broxton's coming up. Tommy Hunter, big right-hander, big strikeout potential against right-handers. It's not a position that you really want to count on somebody getting the ball in play. And Keon Broxton's just not that person. And so I completely understand why you want Manny Pena, guy who's hitting 290, 291, I think he was hitting coming into the game and has actually been one of the more productive hitters with runners in scoring position, why you're going to rely on him to be able to put the ball in play in a productive situation. The other thing that a lot of people don't necessarily get when with Manny Pena is out of any player on the Brewers roster, he actually has the lowest ground ball percent or the lowest uh, ground ball rate. So if you're looking at any player on the, the big league roster of who's going to be the least likely to put the ball on the ground to get a double play. It's actually Manny Pena. So in a lot of ways, maybe asking him to bunt is putting yourself in position to actually get a double play more. Um, ultimately, again, I think I probably would have asked him to bunt, but I don't think it's worth getting upset about either way. The only reason that people are upset is because they lost the game and it's frustrating to watch somebody lose a, uh, a one run lead in a pennant race in the way that it happened. 
So that's kind of where I fall on it. I think people are just getting upset to be upset at the situation and not necessarily at the play itself. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's worth noting that of all the situations in baseball where you could potentially bunt, the first and second and no out is actually the most beneficial position to bunt. Like it's where the numbers most favorite and they barely favor bunting in that case. Like it barely the the fact that you can increase your per, your percent chance of scoring a run by five percent that barely favors it. It's of all the situations that's as literally as good as it gets as when you're first and second and no out. And, and as it, you mentioned, there were some reasons also not to there too. So like right. and Pena's it's, it's particular batter profile. Yeah, it's worth noting that Craig Council was asked about whether or not he would bunt in that situation, and he said, "Yeah, with certain players, I would." Manny Pena is not one of those players, and. That should speak volumes in terms of the decision, but of course everybody is of the opinion that a lot of a lot of people who watch the the game, maybe the average fan is of the opinion that every single person can get the bunt down no matter what, even if you have a nasty pitcher on the mound, and and that because that's be what into that's what professional hitters are supposed to do, right? That's part of the fundamentals of the game. Which yeah, that's right. a loaded term you're because talking you about. expect every hitter to hit exactly the same. Uh, yeah, obviously skill sets are different, so you can't expect everybody to get bunts down. And uh, we have our first Twitter question from uh, Real Tim C, and he asked, "Yes, did I say that cor- incorrectly?" Tim Sai. Tim Sai. I would assume it's Sai Young, right? I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Baseball theme podcast, you know. We're talking about Twitter names. These things aren't even real. <laughs> so, first time, long time. Should Craig Council mispronounce it as punting the next time he's asked about bunting? I'll hang up, take the answer off air. Ryan, would you suggest he troll everybody like that? Yes. I'm I'm 100% in favor of Craig Council trolling whenever he can. We're in favor of trolling both football and baseball fans whenever you have a chance. Right? Trolling is good. Okay. So we're past the non-waiver trade deadline, but obviously teams can still make moves. So we have a question from Jason Spitz on Twitter. He says, I have been a keep your prospects guy all year. But looking at the Alonzo trade, how could the Brewers not buy a rental bat for the stretch drive? It's a, it's a good question, and I think a lot of people were surprised at what it took to not only get Alonzo, but what it took to get Lucas Duda before that. And so a lot of folks are looking at rental bats and seeing just how low the price is. But I think it's important to keep a couple of things in mind here. I, I do think that the Brewers should be monitoring the market for a rental bat. I, I think it absolutely makes sense given the prices. But using something like the Alonzo trade as a barometer is is very difficult because the sneaky thing about Yonder Alonzo is he's been pretty darn bad the last couple of months. And so a lot of people are looking at Alonzo thinking of the headlines that he was generating in April and May and not realizing that he was, I think it was something like a 760 OPS for a first baseman in, in June and July. That is not the kind of guy that you're going to be able a, a have to pay much for, but you're also not going to really like to hold down a, a corner bat position, especially if you are going to be going into you know, a postseason run in, in August and September. So I think it absolutely makes sense to look at either a bench bat. You know, I, I do know we have a question about second base. So second base could make some sense too. maybe the, the outfield. If they don't want to bring up a, a prospect, if they have a veteran bat, that makes some sense there could also see that. Uh, but I also 
don't think that using the Alonzo trade is a great barometer for what it would cost to bring in uh, a decent rental bat because Alonzo is kind of overhyped because of his early start. And I think his price reflects that. Well, and I mean, is a corner bat even like a primary concern for the Brewers if they're really looking to get somebody? No, no, absolutely not. I think from my perspective, I think the, the question was taking a look at Alonzo and judging from that what it would cost to get a bat in general. Um, J.D. Martinez, the price, was, the price was actually very low for J.D. Martinez, and he's obviously a much better bat than Alonzo is. So the, the price, I think, for rental bats is very, very low. The For rentals, period, is very low. Okay. Uh, Matt, having Hold on one second. Yeah, having got... spoken to Jason on Twitter about this a little bit, I know one of his particular concerns was trying to find a leadoff guy. So that's, I think, part of what he's looking at. Somebody who's got a decent on base that you could stick at the top of the lineup who can set up for some of the other guys because the Brewers haven't had great options at leadoff this year because most of the guys who've been any good up there have been guys who have more power. So maybe you want to actually keep them a little bit lower in the lineup so that they can have more opportunities to drive somebody in. Are there people you can think of off the top of your head who would be leadoff fits, JP? Uh, Domingo Santana, uh, Eric Thames. I mean, on the market. I know. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I, I was I was being snarky. No, I think one of the biggest things, especially up at the top of the order, if we are looking at leadoff, it's not as big of a deal for me if you do want guys like Domingo Santana, Eric Thames, etc., to be able to drive in runs, because the biggest consternation with the Brewers right now is not being able to drive in runs with runners in scoring position. It's the fact that they are hitting a lot of home runs. So whether or not Domingo Santana is hitting with you know, potentially the base is empty down in the fifth spot or he's hitting with the bases empty, you know, to lead off. I'd rather much rather him get more at bats and have an opportunity to hit more home runs, because really the only question about setting the table matters in the first inning. And as we've seen throughout the year, the first inning is the least of the Brewers problems in terms of scoring runs. So that's not a huge concern for me at all. Fair. Okay, well, Matt Malman sends in a question. He says, do you guys think Neil Walker or Brandon Phillips will be realistic and or beneficial? Both are expensive veterans on the last year of their deals and could provide solid two-way value. Obviously, the Brewers could take on most, if not all, of their money, which would be appealing for both the Mets and the Braves. Which one do you prefer, or do they have any better options? I mean, with Walker, we'd need to see him healthy and actually doing something before you'd want to make a move like that. I know that the Mets would like to probably clear his salary, but he hasn't played since April. Is that correct? Looking at it now. Looks like April. Yeah. I mean, so we would need to see him healthy before we could even discuss that. And then with Phillips, I mean, he's fine. It would be, you know, potentially an upgrade for the short term. But well, again, I was looking at the the contracts and the Reds are picking up 13 of his 14 million dollars right now. So. For the Braves, it's not even a salary dump. I'm, you know, I'm not even sure you could poach him for that or if he's that much of an upgrade. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think Neil Walker would be somebody that I would actually like quite a bit at second base, especially, you know, if he is healthy. Uh, he's a good bat, good veteran bat, somebody who can play, you know, has played pretty solid second base over his career defensively. And Brandon Phillips... It's just not really my cup of tea. And the biggest thing was he rejected so many trades from Cincinnati, and he eventually decided that Atlanta was where he wanted to go. So not only would Atlanta have to, you know, Atlanta picked him up knowing that 
you know, he he was somebody who was willing to exercise uh, his no trade uh, protection. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he still has that. So he would want to, he would have to assent to going to Milwaukee. And I don't really see much in terms of his, his player history that would suggest he would want to come to Milwaukee. Uh, some people would say that maybe he wants to, to make a push for the playoffs. Obviously, it wasn't a big deal going to Atlanta, and Atlanta has actually been better than a lot of people thought, but uh, it wasn't the driving factor for him. So I don't see a, a good reason why he would make himself available. But Neil Walker makes some sense to me if he does if he does uh, come back and improve himself healthy because he's, he's a bat that I actually like quite a bit. Okay, uh, Eric Cumming on Twitter asks, April 2017 will account for what percentage of the total value over the course of Eric Thames' contract? So I looked this up. Uh, currently on Fangraphs, he's worth one and a half war, and uh, that put him at $11.9 million worth of uh, value. Um, and then Baseball Reference has him at 1.7 war, and in 2015, 538 figured a when uh, teams were paying $7.7 million per win. So his April alone was worth $13 million at that time. Now, I mean, I don't know if you'd really want to judge a player's value over three years on one month because that doesn't help you the rest of the season. But, I mean, if you're just going by the production he had that month, yeah, I mean, the team's not really, like, losing money on what he did. Right. I, I don't necessarily have a good answer in terms of what percentage. Um because I, I frankly have no idea. Uh, but I will say one of the things that people haven't necessarily paid attention to in the last month or so is that Eric Thames has actually been very good. Um, Eric Thames has been very, very productive for the, for the Brewers ever since the beginning of July. And so really, it's a question, you know, a, a lot of people, we've talked about raising expectations. The expectations were so high after April and the fact that he struggled in May and June soured a lot of people on Eric Thames. And after that, especially with the overall offensive struggles that have happened since, you know, since the beginning of July or since the all-star break, people don't like to hear about guys that are hitting well, unless their name is Orlando Garcia. And then everybody actually likes the fact that he's hitting well. I don't know why that's the one narrative that everybody's picked up on, but that seems to be the one. Well, I think Garcia was an, an ascension. So, I mean, it was it was basically he started low and everything's gone uphill from there. I think once right. you kind of see the, those dips in production, that's when people get a little bit nervous about it, though. I mean, yeah. Thames, even when he wasn't hitting, showed an ability to get on base. Absolutely. I mean, so I, the he power had, is going to come and go. Yeah, the power comes it comes and goes. His ability to get hits, you know, kind of comes and goes. But he's a patient hitter. He works pitchers. You know, he still gets on base at a decent clip, even if he's not just destroying the ball at any time. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think that the important thing to realize for Thames too, is that his entire career, you know, especially since he went to Korea has been about making adjustments and he got back to the MLB, absolutely crushed it. The league adjusted, they were pitching him high and away and they were pitching him with, with uh, breaking balls low in the zone. And he was struggling to make that adjustment because he wasn't seeing fastballs in his wheelhouse anymore. And, now he is adjusting again, and that's what baseball is. It's a game of adjustments. The league is going to adjust. You have to a league. You have to adjust back to what the league has done. And the other thing too is Eric Thames was hurt. I mean, he was playing, but his leg. He was regularly getting time off because of his leg issues in May. I don't necessarily know if it was lasting until June, but 
you know, the joke I made was that he looked like Nick Cage running in in National Treasure because it was just, you know, for a guy who stole so many bases and in April you could see it could pick it up pretty I, well on the base paths. Can I just say that as a historian, the fact that you've seen National Treasure enough times to make that comp in your mind like instantly is very yeah. disappointing, like deeply, deeply disappointing. Nice. Nick Cage, by the way, Nick Cage is actually um, was the lead in the only movie I've ever walked out of in the theaters. I can was, see that. I, I'm waiting was, to hear which Nicolas Cage movie it was, because there are a lot of candidates for that. It was uh, The Weatherman. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I don't even remember that the one. The Leone one. Oh, I thought it was going to be the one. Wasn't there one where he's like dancing around as a dressed up as a stuffed bear in the woods like at the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have no idea. <laughs> there is. No, no, no. I'm not making that up. There is. So N- Nicolas Cage and Eric Thames' ability to run are comparable. Anyway, um, he's he's a streaky hitter. And he's a streaky hitter. And they also had him, when Braun was hurt, filling out in left. He was filling in in left field. Which never that, that should be a very limited option. Yeah, because his ability to play defense out in left field is terrible. And the guy, like we said, was injured at the time. So, um, okay, we're going to jump in the way back machine for the next uh, question. And I know, Ryan, you really want to you, you answer this one. Okay, so Ted Langer asks on Facebook. Facebook uh, we did get a Facebook question. And you know what? I, I have to give Ted credit. He asked a question for last week. And again, yeah. because Ryan primarily manages the Facebook page, we didn't see it. Oh, so yeah, this, this actually would have been in the previous week uh, if Ryan manages that page like he's supposed to. So Ted asks, why has the Brewers Farm System not produced a homegrown ace since Ben Sheets? Though I suppose that you could include Giovanni Gallardo in the homegrown ace conversation as well. Okay. First off, I would say Gallardo was borderline. I mean, he, he was never really a true ace, but he was a very, very good developed starting pitcher. So getting that out of the way. Anyway, first off, developing an ace is very hard. There are not many aces in uh, baseball, and so developing one, is difficult. Well, I guess what do you want to define ace as? Are we saying it the best pitcher on your team, or are we saying one of the best ten pitchers in baseball? Yeah, I think that's that's generally more the scouting way of looking at it. Is a guy who is a guy that everybody in the world would agree you want them starting game one of a playoff series. You'd want them starting game seven of the World Series. Like that's the guy you want. Right. But also I mean, they're they're gonna they're gonna go out there and give you seven plus innings and prevent runs as well right, right yes right and if you're thinking of the whole the whole idea of a bell curve right the ace ace are the ones at the very right hand tip of the bell curve like those are the guys that so far outpace everyone in the league and largely outpace what their projection was coming out of the minor leagues you know the your zach Granke's, your chris sales you know we're not talking about matt kane like matt kane very good pitcher not an ace, right? And and Giovanni, Giovanni Gallardo, for me, very good pitcher, not an ace. Right. Anyway, so I looked at some numbers on this, and one of the things that stood out to me, and I've, I've mentioned this before, probably on our old podcast even, um, one of the things and a reason why the Brewers didn't develop pitching so well for quite a while was they weren't spending high draft picks on it. Um, if we go back to Ben Sheets, since Ben Sheets, there have been 27 first-round picks for the Brewers. And only 12 of those 27 were spent on pitchers. So they ended up spending 15 on, on hitters. So they weren't spending their, their resources that way. Also, 
of the 12, only one was a top 10 pick. So they had a bunch of top 10 picks. They took Prince Fielder in the top 10, Ricky Weeks, Ryan Braun, Matt Laporta. They had a bunch of guys that they've taken. Uh, Corey Ray recently. They have a bunch of guys that they've taken in the top 10. Hey, Matt Laporta turned into an ace. Sure. Um, but they only, they only took one guy in the top 10, and that was Mark Rogers in 2004. And that didn't work out so hot because of injuries and whatever. And that's something that happens. Um, really, they didn't. They didn't spend a ton Wait, of resources. Wait, hold on. The Mark Rogers thing, he didn't turn into an ace, and that happens, but he also had a delivery that everybody said would cause injury, and that's exactly what happened. Right. So yeah. there may have been a bit of a flaw in their process when drafting some of these guys as well. Sure, and that was the I, same draft that they got Gallardo also. They drafted yeah, Gallardo in the second round. I, I do think that that's a fair criticism, but I also say that there are people that have great deliveries that also end up getting Tommy John surgery and arm injury arm injuries throughout i'm not- also sorry i wanted to say one more thing because i definitely wanted to make this point um jimmy nelson is currently having the best brewers starting pitching season since ben sheets in 2008 I, you could also include cc sabathia in that i don't because sabathia was only there for half a season he was a mercenary he was a sellsword he was a sellsword <laughs> but um i mean right now you're looking at jimmy nelson with a 133 era plus a 465 K to base on ball ratio, a 3.04 FIP. And it compares really well to what Sheets did that year, which was a 137 ERA plus, uh, a 338 uh, strikeout to walk ratio, and a 3.36 uh, FIP. I mean, you're talking about these guys. Jimmy Nelson is legitimately having an ace season, like the best we've seen. If you go and look at in 2011, 2012, Gallardo and, and Grinke had good seasons. They were not as good as what Jimmy Nelson has done so far. And there's still time for that, obviously, to, to go the other direction. Hopefully it doesn't. But, I mean, Jimmy Nelson right now is having, it's pretty hard to argue, the anything other than he's having the best season since uh, since Ben Sheets in 2008 for the yes. Brewers as a starter. Well, and I think everybody's appreciating Jimmy Nelson's uh, success so far this season. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because you had Chase Anderson pitching well early, and then I think Jimmy Nelson kind of came up behind him once Anderson went down with the injury. Well, Nelson too. also had kind of a mediocre April. Yeah, it was still, it was, it was solid. It was good enough, but he's been much better since. I, I have a couple of points to, to make about the kind of the ACE discussion. Um, you know, the first one is, is frankly, some of it's randomness, right? Like p- pitchers develop in very uneven ways. And so there is, you know, there's something to be said for, randomness taking into effect here i'm not saying that every pick is a is a lottery ticket and all the lottery tickets have the exact same you know likelihood of hitting but that that should be mentioned um it also should be mentioned that jack zarenzik just frankly wasn't very good at identifying quality arms um it's it was not his forte and even after he went to seattle it was not something in which he was able to pick out quality arms again and again. Well, does that so, mean he wasn't able to surround himself with people either? I it mean, could be. It could know. be. But, I mean, like the the guiding philosophy for the Zarensic era was to find premium tools, right? Whether it was Prince Fielder and power, whether it was, you know, Ricky Weeks and the power speed or the bat speed, whether it was Ryan Braun and, and his ability to hit the ball for power, whether it was, you know, Mark Rogers and his big fastball, it was identifying the big tool and then trying to develop around it. And, you know, that was his biggest criticism for bats too, was you identified the bat, 
and you worried about where they were going to play defense later. And so many people criticize Zarenzik for not being able to to scout guys or or prefer draft picks that could handle a, a, a position defensively outside of maybe get J.J. Hardy, perhaps. But the other thing, this goes you know back to, to Melvin and the ownership in the mid-2000s is completely divested themselves from international scouting. And the ability to criticize the, the organization for not developing arms and realizing that they were not taking advantage of the international market as well as they should have is a huge reason why the, the system right now is still trying to develop its international talent through the system, even when they started to, to buy guys like Nick Pierre, who they, I think it was 800,000. And that was like a huge deal when they went and got Nick Pierre. And I, I believe it was friendly Mellon. And those were the guys that were like the signal that the brewers were getting back in the international market. They brought back their DSL club and those guys are still in able because when they're signed, they're 16 years old. Yeah. Should we... so oh, that's a super long lead time. And you get into the situation that, you know, the only they once in a while took a shot, you know, whether it was Willie Peralta was actually one of the few arms that they went and, and, and took. And he actually made it all the way through the system and wasn't as good as everybody thought. But, you know, they, they decided that what they wanted to do is they wanted to buy fewer international players and they wanted to fast track them. It didn't work. And so once, you know, the team is now being able to try to develop international arms, it will be interesting to see if the, you know, the production is better in terms of uh, developing pitching talent. Uh, Listen to baseball on Twitter is already looking to next year. We'll stay on pitching here. Uh, They want to know what is your projected opening day 2018 starting rotation? So I'm guessing if, if I had to throw a guess today, this is what I would, I would guess Jimmy Nelson first, uh, Chase Anderson, second Kyle Davies, third Zach Davies, third, Let's hope um, Kyle Davies does not come out of retirement to come pitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, Junior Guerra fourth and Brandon Woodruff fifth. That, if I had to guess where we're at, and I, I'm fully aware that there's other guys in the conversation there, does Josh Hader get the clearance to go ahead and 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 start? Do they decide to go that direction? Does Brent Suter continue to be a decent starter? Um, there's also depth guys, you know, you know, guys in the minors behind that. And the potential of bringing in somebody from the outside, but if I had to line it up today, I think Nelson. Wait, wait, Anderson, wait! Why, Davies, why would they? Woodruff, why would they bring Darrow. in someone from the outside where they could pick up Matt Garza's uh, option? Don't laugh. You're the one that brought it up. JP, do you have any opinions on this? Because you didn't seem too amused when uh, Ryan mentioned Junior Guerra as a possibility for the starting rotation next year. Yeah, I think I think the odds that the Brewers go into 2018 with Junior Guerra in the rotation. Uh, would signal some kind of misplay in, in the offseason. Because I think that there are internal upgrades o- over Junior Guerra. Uh, I would I would actually much rather have Matt Garza in the rotation than Junior Guerra next season. Um, but I understand the cost control issue. I understand the option. And I understand that last week I said that I wouldn't actually want to pick up Matt Garza's. But I'm just trying to, to reflect how unlikely I see it is that Junior Guerra comes back unless the fastball returns in September, unless he just is absolutely lights out, right? Um, even in spring training, if he pitches his way back into the rotation, good for him because he's shown the ability to be able to do that, just not over a long period of time and consistently. 
But I think for myself, I would say it's going to be Jimmy Nelson, uh, Chase Anderson, Zach Davies, either one of Josh Hader or Brandon Woodruff. I don't think that they'll end up going into the 2018 season with two rookies. Uh, I understand Josh Hader is not technically rookie eligible, but he would be like a rookie starting pitcher. We'll just call him a first-year starter. First-year starter. Thank you. Yeah, that's why you're the host. Good with that. Um, So either Brandon Woodruff or Josh Hader taking up one of the spots, and then I think you'll see somebody from the outside. I'm not in love with a lot of the options in free agency. You know, maybe somebody like a Lance Lynn, if, if somehow that comes back as an okay deal. But most likely I see a an arm coming from outside the organization, most likely via trade. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I mean, picking up former Cardinal starters has never gone poorly for the Brewers before. So, Brandon Looper was actually not bad for a bit. Hey, Loesch had two good seasons. Kyle Loesch was actually pretty good for a while, right? Now, don't let Jeff Supon's deal cloud your judgment. Well, and Loesch also, at the end of that deal, uh, crashed and burned pretty hard. But yes, Kyle Loesch should give him a couple good years. Um, okay. Brewers prospects asks, and we're going to go back to international signings here. So do you guys have any, any opinions on some of the more recent international signings? You want me to give the list of names that he has? Yeah. Cibrian, Carmona, Abreu, Ernesto, uh, C Rodriguez, Martinez. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested to see what Carmona does. I'm assuming next year in Arizona, that will be, that'll be interesting. He's having a, a pretty solid year with the bat obviously still working on defensive issues in the DSL right now. Um, And I'm also interested in, so there's an interesting contrast in reading. And at this point, really, it is just reading the publicly available stuff for me anyway, uh, between Ernesto, who's just an absolute tool shed, Larry Ernesto, absolute tool shed of an outfielder. um, And there's some disagreement on exactly how good he maybe is. And then Carlos Rodriguez, who, Everything I've seen uh, publicly available talks about how polished he is. He also is toolsy and has, you know, some serious upside, but that he's very polished for a 16-year-old from uh, the Dominican. So watching that contrast between those two, um, and I don't know, do you think that we could see one of or both of them come straight up to uh, Arizona next year, or are they going to get the DSL year, do you think, JP? I assume that they'll get the DSL year just because the organization is trying to build a robust DSL system. I mean, not only do they have the DSL club, but they actually have a cooperative DSL club as well. I believe with the Indians um, to go to the Indians or the O's. I can't remember which one it is. I think it's the Indians. And I'm actually really interested. I like uh, Carmona and Abreu from last year quite a bit. There were great reviews from uh, Cibrian, the, the catcher from, I uh, believe, two years ago. Um, but I believe he's injured right now and the reason he's not playing. But Carmona and uh, Carmona has had a nice year in the DSL, and that's always nice to see. It's also nice to see a guy who can draw some walks. But I've been surprised to see in a lot of, you know, MLB Pipeline had their top 30 come out, and guys like Ernesto and Rodriguez popped up in the top 30 while guys like Carmona, who was also a top 30 international prospect the year before, is performing quite well and is at a premium position at shortstop. Whether or not he'll stay there is, you know, is a live question. But I was surprised to see the people that haven't had a chance to fail yet popped up over some of the DSL guys that are playing quite well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's you've seen 
the international crop do largely the same thing that the big league or, you know, the stateside uh, organizational approach has been to spend the higher picks, to spend the most international money on bats. And it's very, very difficult to judge arms when they're 16 years old. Uh, and largely the signings have to be done when they're 14 and 15 years old. These are not signings that happen right at the, right at the last second. So you're really scouting 14 and 15 year olds. And when it comes to arms, that's incredibly difficult to do. It's and just so, so much projection. It's, it's, it's so much projection. It's so much randomness. It's so much, you know, do you have guys who are 14 years old blowing out their arms because they're trying to get a good contract? And, you know, largely you do. And it's not always their fault. It's a lot of the, the fault of the, the trainers, you know, people trying to get out of poverty. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of come into play with these with these sort of projections. But um, it's been interesting to see the Brewers largely target international bats. And Carmona is is kind of at the top of the list in terms of the guys I'm interested to see, see stateside. Um, oh, by the way, it was the Orioles and the Brewers, that combined team. It's the Orioles and Brewers, not the Indians and Brewers. Right on. Yeah. By the way, if you want to watch a movie that's good uh, regarding signing some of these kids before they're of age, when they're 14, 15, uh, it's called Ballplayer uh, Pelotero. I think you can see it on Netflix. It, you, I, I watched it on so, Netflix. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's on Netflix, and yeah. you'll recognize a young Miguel Sano in there. He's one of the, the two kids they focus on. Yeah, um, I actually recommend going back to listen to Up and In with, uh, with Kevin Goldstein on Jason Parks. Kevin Goldstein's now uh, with the, the Astros. Kevin... Uh, and Jason is now with uh, with the Cubs, but I won't hold that against them. Their their podcast in terms of talking about international talent, the processes that go within it. Parks has spent a lot of time in in the Dominican and in Latin America more generally, and he talks a lot about the Buscone system. He talks a lot about the back end dealings that have to happen. So uh, up and in, also a good free podcast to go back and listen to if you want to hear about the inner workings of the game. I highly recommend it in terms of international uh, processes. Uh, I do want to say it is good to get background on that podcast because uh, the movie uh, ball player did kind of cast guys in a little bit more of a good and evil light, I think, as far as uh, some of the scouts that were working down there. So, again, it really made the guy from the Pirates look bad. And that was, yeah, which was maybe he's. He's still around and he's still fairly well respected. I was going to so. say he's a pretty significant scout down there. Yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, Jason Donlinger asks, and we're going to move back into, I think, a lot of prospect stuff here. So he asks, do you have any feelings on the way the club has handled Lewis Brinson this season? Um, I'm not mad yet, but potentially, like, if if Brinson – so they made the decision at the trade deadline that Brinson was their guy and they were not going to give him up basically for anything – and so they clearly have a very high opinion of him, and it's getting close to the time where you would say, you know what, this guy needs to be in the major leagues and getting at-bats on a consistent basis. I don't know if we're at that point. We're, for me, I don't think I'm going to reach that point this year where I'm actually going to be angry. If they're still messing around with this next May, next June, um, then I'm going to start to really question and well, have an and issue he's with been, it but he's not still quite been, yet he's still been killing it in triple a too it's not like you realize anything to show there but you are ryan you are a keon broxton fan i am so you more don't of a mind, keon broxton fan than most you don't mind him getting a bit of a shot to 
just completely failed before. I think we talked about this last week. Yeah, I want to see Keon Broxton get some some run and see if he can boost some value and potentially trade him in the offseason. That's yeah, I think so. I'm okay with this in the short term, but it's definitely the time for Brinson needing to be in the majors is quickly going to be upon us. Yeah, I don't think there's a way they start next season with him not on the major league roster. I wouldn't think so. I would think he'd be back up in September at the very least, too. If not uh, three days from now, who knows? The way they they bounce people around, it could be even quicker. But, I mean, it's not going to be – they're not going to be jerking around his service time at this point. I wouldn't think so because he's already been up enough that if you were to keep him down – He'd have to be down for half a season next year. Especially – yeah, he'd have to be down a while. Well, to get the extra year of service time, not quite that long. To get Super 2, which I don't think is even a consideration. But, yeah, whatever. Anyway – it's getting, it's getting to be time, but it, I don't think it. For me, it's not quite time yet. You, JP? No, I'm not. I'm not upset with how they're handling Lewis Brinson. Like, I don't think that they're ruining his development or anything of that sort. I, I am a little bit confused by some of the choices, um, but I'm not angry about them. I, I, I think it was interesting that they sent down Keon Broxton to figure out some swing mechanics or to get his confidence back, and then bring him up so quickly to play every day uh which it, it's confusing because keon broxton is not going to figure out anything in a week he's not going to get his confidence back you know in three or four games down in triple a or anything of that sort so bringing him back up and playing him every day as if you know that trip down to triple a solved anything is is a, a strange decision um just like i thought it was a strange decision that they basically brought up lewis brinson because the cubs and the nationals had a bunch of lefties um that was also a strange decision for me but i i agree that i think he'll be back up in september he might be playing every day in september depending on how Keon broxton does this month um but it's not anything i'm upset about it's not anything that i think is ruining lewis brinson i think most people are just upset about it because they're sick of watching Lu- uh Keon broxton and I think that that's a separate issue. Is it possible that they are just so surprised to be competitive right now and thought they'd be selling at the deadline that they have kind of a bit of a traffic jam in the outfield they thought they wouldn't have coming into 2017? I think they thought they were going to trade either Domingo Santana or Keon Broxton, and Santana's almost per- performed too well, where Keon Broxton got cold at the wrong time. And then it got them in a position in which they couldn't trade either of them to make room for Lewis Brinson to play every single day. And so I think they just kind of got in a weird, a weird spot where, you know, for Santana, it was great for Broxton. It was kind of unfortunate. And then it left Lewis Brinson without a clear path to playing time that I think they thought that they were going to have. Yeah, they, you know, we should celebrate again. I think we've brought it up in each podcast so far, but we should celebrate uh, Domingo Santana's development because that. That's kind of, I think, what everybody's looking for when you're rebuilding the system. These guys are, are breaking into the league. Yeah. So uh, following previous top five segment, uh, this is from Nick Zettel. Uh, who is everyone's favorite under-the-radar prospect, and who could hit the top ten we are not currently talking about? Um. Matt Sorry. Garza just gave yeah. up a grand slam. Garza so. gave up the grand slam, so we all just kind of slouched over right in our chairs as we watched that. Um, for me, the, some guys that I am very interested in and would like to keep an eye on are the pitchers who are out this year with injury and have, have lost some time due to injury, um, but were high draft picks and good 
good prospects. Uh, Nathan Kirby, who we're still waiting to you know get a good look at at the professional level. Hopefully things have been cleared up in his elbow. He had some uh, cleanup surgery after having Tommy John, and that's why he hasn't been around this season. And also Devin Williams, who was the Brewers' first pick in 2013? Yeah, 2013. Um, who's also missing the season due to uh, surgery. So those would be guys I, I would like to keep an eye on for the future because I think they have impact potential down the line. I don't think that there is anybody that's under the radar that could potentially be making the top 10 next year. I think those are the names that everybody's talked about ad nauseum just because there's been so much attention drawn to the, the Brewer system, right? I mean, those are the guys like Freddie Peralta. Those are the guys like Tristan Lutz. Those are, uh, you know, Monty Harrison, those types of players that were outside the top 10 that could really start squeezing their way back in. Uh, but in terms of, you know, who are a couple of my favorite under the radar prospects, Mario Feliciano was, was somebody I mentioned before the season and his bats look pretty good this year. It, he is playing behind the plate every single, basically every single game. And so offense notoriously develops late for catchers because they're so involved in learning how to catch, learning how to play defensively, learning how to handle a, a pitching staff, learning how to, to deal with the grind of playing behind the plate every single day. And Jonathan Lucroy is a prime example of that, especially at the big league level in terms of how offense can develop late for, for catchers. So Feliciano, even though he started off great, and then has struggled a little bit since the summer has come along. I'm not too worried about that. Still a, a guy I really like. And Gabriel Garcia is actually one of the more underrated bats that I like quite a bit. I, I'm not saying that he can be an impact guy at the big league level, but he's somebody that didn't even make the top 30 list. And he's a bat that just, you know, has exceeded expectations in a lot of way in terms of good, you know, shown supply, uh, surprising pop good swing path, good idea of what he's doing at the plate. It's just where, where is he going to be defensively? If he is stuck at first base, that's a tough position to carry with a bat that doesn't have premium power, but you know, he's, he's still somebody who has a good idea of the strike zone, had a 400 on base percentage going for quite a bit of this summer. And so he's, he's a guy that I don't think is going to get a lot of attention, especially when we start talking about top 10 season, but I actually like quite a bit. Uh, if he has a nice season in a ball next year for Wisconsin, we might start hearing about him a little bit more. All right. Uh, J.R. Radcliffe on Twitter asks, I know uh, down year by Brewers prospects doesn't mean much, but who should I worry about the most and the least help direct my consternation? You want to take this one first? You know, who should you worry about the most and the least? It's. Yeah, I mean, I assume that down year by Brewers prospects means just some of the bats down in Carolina because I'm not sure it's actually been a down year in terms of Brewers prospects more generally. Um, Freddie Peralta's taken a step forward. You've seen somebody like Brett Phillips come back and take a step forward from where he was. You've seen Corbin Burns come back and become potentially a top 100 prospect. And so there are a lot of guys that have actually taken a step forward. And you know, even if you do look at Monte Harrison, you look at Jake Gatewood is becoming a prospect again. Um, there are a lot of good things that are happening in the in the Brewers organization. But I take it that the, a lot of the consternation is around Corey Ray, Isan Diaz, 
and uh, Trent Clark. And Lucas Those, Ersig. And Lucas Ersig to a certain extent as well, right? Even though he's starting to turn it around. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of who you should be worried about least, I don't know. I'm not necessarily concerned about any of them per se. I, I think it's far too early to be concerned about any of them. I think if there is one big concern, it would be Corey Ray just in terms of he might not be able to be the premium prospect everybody was looking for. I don't think that there's a concern for me that he is still not a prospect, that he's still not a top 10 prospect in the organization, that he doesn't still have utility or could still make the big leagues. Um, But I think there are some big question marks of whether or not he could be a potential stud. Right. And so if you are worried about something, I'd look at that. Uh, And that's the whole reason that Brewers fans wanted to trade Corey Ray. Uh, You know, especially for, for Sonny Gray, everybody was like, well, Corey Ray, he could potentially be a stud. Why is everybody not, you know, trying to, to look at him as a centerpiece for the Sonny Gray deal? Well, pretty much the exact same reason a lot of us are not putting Corey Ray in the top five of our system. I currently am because I still need to see it a, a little bit longer. But if I do have concerns over any of those guys down there, Corey Ray is probably the one that's taken a step back more than than some of the other ones. Um, for me, the guy, I think, I don't even know if it's so much worry at this point is more turning into disappointment is just Gilbert Lara. The fact that he is struggling again and had to be demoted again and is just not uh, not putting it together, hasn't developed the feel that you need to be able to uh, to be a big league hitter. And that's, you know, considering how high the, the ceiling was and how much the Brewers paid and that he was the highest paid player out of that July 2 signing class, it's disappointing. But, I mean, it's not that it's over for him, that he can't potentially turn it around down the line, but he's he's got a, a tough situation at this point because he just really hasn't developed the way that we'd hoped. Well, and he also stands out because going back to what we were talking about earlier, the Brewers weren't really in the international market. So I think Lara also stands out just due to that fact that he wasn't surrounded by many other guys who were like he was when he was signed. Yeah, he got yeah. a lot of attention. And like when they when he signed, I remember somebody, I no idea who it was, but asked me on Twitter and they're like, is it too, is it too much to hope that he would be in the big leagues by 2018? And I mean, even then I was like, I mean, if that would be like Miguel Cabrera, he's a miracle generational talent if he does that. But that would be, you know, that would be pushing it. It's more like 2022, 2023 would be more of a realistic. You could hope he maybe has, you know, real star power at that point. But he hasn't developed the way that they'd hoped. So um, you still just kind of sit there. And I guess the guy I'm least worried about, I picked one. I still really, really feel good about Lucas Ersig. So I just think that that overall profile is going to end up playing in the big leagues. I think there's enough there that even though he is struggling this year, and he, like you said, he turned it around a little bit lately, but I think that the overall profile there is, is going to be enough to carry him through, and I think he's still going to be a pretty good prospect down the line. Yeah, I will say on on Lara, it's it's another cautionary tale against somebody who has a good frame for power, somebody who does hit for great power in batting practice, but a lot of people start talking about how weird his swing is. Yeah. Those are the types of of profiles that become very difficult to project in the in the big leagues because it's a kind of swing nobody had really seen work in terms of the pros. And they were hoping that he'd be able to make changes or adapt or even just the the swing would work. And it just it just hasn't thus far. Yeah. What was um, it? He had like really loose wrists or 
there was almost a hitch in his swing. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a really awkward. Yeah. I mean, it was really awkward hand and wrist movement largely. Um, but yeah, it just hasn't worked out for him thus far. And, and so hopefully it can, I mean, he's talked about the fact that he's never really failed playing baseball before. And so it's a new thing for him to have to deal with, you know, frankly playing badly. Um, and I think that's, that's something for international players or even college collegiate players or high school players. Like these people are better than everybody they've played against for years. And then suddenly have to deal with the fact that they're stepping onto a field with other people that are as good as them, if not better than them. And they have to learn how to fail and people deal with that differently. Austin Borgart, he asks, hey, guys, I have a few questions about Monty Harrison. This season, Monty has reduced his strikeout percentage while showing a strong power spike. Is this the breakout season scouts were looking for, or at least a good step in the right direction? If so, would you consider Monty a top 50 prospect today? Top it's a 50-plus future values. Oh, so got plus. it, got it, got it. So, so 50 will be a league average player. I mean, okay. he's finally healthy, so this is – that's, I think, the biggest thing is we've been waiting for him to have a healthy season for a while now, and he's finally having one, and he had shown glimpses here and there. And I think coming into the year, he was one of your guys to watch, wasn't he, JP? Yeah, I was uh, – Monty Harrison, I was all aboard that train heading into the end of the season, so it's been nice to see him come back and have some success because, boy, if you're looking at having premium athletes in the, in the system, it's not going to get much better than Monty Harrison. Well, and people really like that draft that Harrison was taken in. It was Harrison, Gatewood, well, uh, Medeiros. Medeiros was, was questionable, but with the other picks, people really liked the draft. And and it, Brandon Woodruff was taken in deeper, deep in that draft. So sure, it was yeah. the eleventh round. Yeah, eleventh round. But it, yeah, that whole draft really hasn't panned out as people had originally hoped. So well, but it's looking pretty decent now. I mean, that's... this season it finally looked like it was kind of turning around. Um, you can't really count on that, though. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about the the FV thing. I, yeah, we don't need to go into. We're already running long. We don't need to go on a whole rant. We'll save that for later about the the whole judging prospects by FV. Um, anyway, is Harrison's strikeout rate a little too high, or is that going to be manageable? He's still at you know twenty seven percent. Well, it's important to remember that Monty Harrison played football for years. I mean, that was his primary sport, and he is somebody who's late to the game a lot like you know i was making a comment i don't remember if it was on air or off air but um lorenzo kane was a very similar type of player who came to baseball late and monty harrison not only has kind of focused on baseball late but has been injured a lot the the one thing that i will say about harrison is his his bat path he doesn't stay in the zone for very long and so he is prone to being able to strike out more just because of that. But, you know, it's one of the reasons that he can put a lot of loft and backspin on the ball and he can really hit for power. Um, and part of the reason why his, his wrists are so fast is part of the reason why the bat doesn't stay in the zone all that more are all that often. So I, I do think he is somebody who probably will strike out quite a bit going forward unless something with the bat path changes, but he's somebody that again, like you can't, on the open market, paying for somebody with that kind of power speed combination in center field at cost a pretty penny. Final question of the day comes from James Anderson. How would you guys grade the main Brewers announcers? So we have Brian Anderson, we got Rock, we got Matt LePay, Jerry Augustine, Euchre, Jeff Levering, Lane Grindle. Yeah. Uh, I guess 
Jeff uh, Levering and Lane Grindle are the actual lead. I was going to say, I, I don't, I'm pretty I don't sure. see a difference between those two, and that is not criticizing. No, either it's not. But Their they, voices just sound. They a are lot very alike. similar. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I think Brian Anderson's probably one of the better announcers you're going to find. Not only in baseball, but obviously he's picking up NBA. He does you know yeah. college basketball. He does college football. So, you know, he's one of the pros out there. So the way I kind of broke it down, I gave like two grades, and I actually wrote this down. Uh, I I gave one for just like their overall broadcast ability, like how well they do the broadcasting thing. And the other one was like baseball specific. And obviously broadcasting is a little bit more important for play-by-play guys. And knowledge of the game is a little bit more important for the, uh, for the uh, color guys, the color guys. So it's, and, and then that doesn't even apply to the radio guys since they do both and everything all the time anyway but which i would just like to point out i am very much in favor uh, in of. favor of keeping that separate because i know they i think that's still around because euchre's calling games where they each call their own unions well they had they used to bring in somebody to do color on the road and now they've gone back they had, to splitting it yeah i'm glad that levering and grindle are still splitting it on and the road i they hope they it. keep it that way that would be that would be my hope too. Though I do like a little bit more interplay when the guy who's not doing the the play by play is like just sitting there. Sure, yeah, they can add a little bit of something like you know, well, the other guy's busy calling the game. But anyway, anyway, yeah. So I kind of said like B A for me. He's like a seventy broadcaster, seventy five maybe even. I mean, he is a pro's pro and really good. What on, on the broadcasting side? I mean, seventy. No, I'm just saying seventy five, not a grade. Oh, so people do the 75 thing all the time. I know. They're insane. Oh. <laughs> okay. And then a little bit, the one thing about BA that I would like if he incorporated a little bit more, you know, based on some things he said over time, he's up on analytical thought and those sorts of things, but doesn't incorporate it into the broadcast as much as like, say, Len Casper does in Chicago. Well, I, I think I think Rock would get angry. Right. But I, so that I'd like to see a little bit more of that come out. Like I've listened to Brian Anderson talking during uh, like season seat holder uh, conference calls and yeah, rock. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, he's a proficient broadcaster. That's he's been doing it a long time. I would like to to point out that this is not going to be a podcast in which we knock rock heavily because I've come to appreciate him quite a bit. Okay. You make the case then. And also I I think you have to acknowledge that like a lot of people in baseball writing about baseball, his views on a lot of analytics have evolved over time. Absolutely. He's gotten better that way. Yes. Yes. But, but rock, I have appreciated how, his interplay between whoever is in the box, you can tell that he was a catcher and is used to handling pitchers and is used to handling personalities because he is really able to to establish rapport with pretty much anybody who's there. And I think that my appreciation for him once Matt LePay came in and how he was able to to ease Matt LePay into to calling baseball and make it easier for him and be able to set him up for things. Uh, I've actually come to appreciate rock heavily. I don't need rock to analyze baseball for me. That's not what he's there for, for me. I, I want, I can, you know, analyze baseball for myself with, with it off. It's not that big of a deal. I want the announcers. I want the people calling the game to, to entertain me. I want them to tell me a good story. I want them to add tidbits about personal, you know, personal things about players or tell stories. I mean, that's why Yuke is so great. Yuke doesn't necessarily add anything in terms of, you know, analyzing the game, but 
you I could I would happily listen to you no matter what I would happily listen to to you in a game that's a 13 run blowout because I know that you's just gonna sit back and tell me stories and that's what I want and you know listening to you can a blowout is even better even well, that's sure where right. it gets, yeah, that's where it's good like, I also have to say he, that he excels that I think you is better with game day because I know a lot of people complain like well Euchre didn't cover the play accurately well you know what get MLB get the app turn on game day you can follow along it'll tell you what happened with the play and you can enjoy euchre actually describing things and in euchre, his own way so it's a legacy guy it, like i i literally wrote down yeah don't complain about it who now cares like it's euchre like there you just yeah i understand that like people who are not brewers fans and listen to that and they can get annoyed and upset about it i would hope not brewers fans w- would enjoy it more I hope Don Brewers fans think of Bob Euchre as a national treasure because he is. Exactly. Yes, there's that. So I, I have to point out that I enjoy Matt LePay calling games, but I, I think a lot voice. of yeah. his voice is great. And a lot of it is, you know, growing up in Madison, being a, you know, Badger football and basketball fan. Matt LePay, it's, it's Bob Euchre. And then Matt LePay is the other guy I think of as a radio broadcaster that's a legend in this state. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. LePay's great. Sure, maybe his baseball is not as what, good as You don't like can... Wayne Larravee? Stop you. <laughs> Larravee's fine, but he came from Chicago. Well, yes. No, and it... I'm going to hold that against him forever. <laughs> like, he's an interloper. He needs to, you know, just <laughs> cool it. So, um, yeah. So, a- anyways, LePay. Like I said, he's a legend as far as I'm concerned for Wisconsin broadcasters. Um, anyways, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, any final thoughts, guys? We kind of rambled there at the end with our broadcasters. So we know that people will not put us on their list of best uh, broadcasters in this state. No, but I will say that to the multiple people who gave Liverpool questions, uh, I, I, you can contact me personally if you want to hear a lot of stories about my thoughts on Liverpool and to the individual who shall not be named, who criticized Liverpool in, in favor of Arsenal, uh, you're not welcome. You're not welcome on our podcast. <laughs> Delete the app. <laughs> you don't listen. <laughs> you are the only person who should not download. Uh, okay, so anyways, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, just a reminder that you can get uh, in contact with us on Twitter. Uh, follow us at MKE Tailgate. You can email us at milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com. And then you can also follow us on Facebook. And you can get more. You know what? If you join the, the group on Facebook, if you find us on there, we will definitely see your question because it is the least active of our social media networks at the moment because Ryan is the one who's managing that one. So, again, you can... <laughs> You can like us on Facebook. Get a hold of us there as well. So, uh, again, look for us next week. Uh, This is Milwaukee's Tailgate. Tailgate.